0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Shame is something that's a little different, and I think um, here's some reality about it. Uh, We all all experience shame, whether we call it shame or not. Some of you might be embarrassed about things. Some feel vulnerable about some things. We talk about being disrespected. That's also shame talk. Honor and shame runs through culture in a lot of ways. What's interesting is we've all experienced both just the temporary kind of propriety shame, which we should have. I mean, you should be like, There are times I should be ashamed of myself about some of the things I've said or done. But then there are um, other times where we experience the chronic shame, kind of this lingering feeling of being unworthy or unacceptable or something is wrong with me, not that I did something wrong. Uh, So shame, we all experience it, we all deal with it, and we all hate to talk about it we're ashamed of our shame. (laughs) Isn't that (laughs) ironic? But we are. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to get rid of it. Guilt, I know how to deal deal with. There's some way to repair, but shame, not so much. And the real truth is uh, the scriptures are filled with uh, talk about shame and also how God deals with it. And we're going to be dealing with that today so the question we're asking this week in our series is going to be, um, I, uh, we're moving into the book of Zephaniah for this, of all the prophets. I don't think I've ever preached on Zephaniah. It's only a three-chapter book. You may have never read it, but there are some wonderful passages in it. And the question that we're asking is, what do you believe God's default? Like, what is his base, foundational, attitude is toward you okay what's that is that is he disappointed or is he not really concerned is he kind of disconnected in some way is he just kind of objective of viewing everything kind of from on high I think that's a lot of people's attitudes about God they think he's just kind of there but not really here In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but um, there are a lot of people who believe, um, like, God has a lot of bigger cosmic fish to fry, in a sense, than to deal with my trivial life. In fact, some of the great thinkers of the world thought that way. Cicero, by instance, uh, this Roman um, poet laureate, almost, and philosopher, he said, the gods attend to great matters. They neglect the small ones and you happen to be one of the small ones in his mind. Aristotle said the same thing, that basically the gods, plural, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, the gods were not focused on human justice or human issues at all. They were not focused on human beings. They were much more wrapped up in their own lives and in the lives between all the different gods and goddesses, but not you. Wow, the Bible is so different than that. Big, you know, the prophet Zephaniah is going to tell us today that God's greatest concern, his focus is you. You. That's what the prophets were all about. They were not prophesying some philosophical, esoteric vision of God. They weren't doing some systematic theology of some type that just kind of describes God in some abstract fashion. Their whole focus was on how God had concern for you. And that's not even being like narcissistic or egotistical to talk this way. No, it sounds like, oh, God's all concerned about me, would be kind of, but that's what the scriptures and the prophets say. And we're going to be reading that today in the book of Zephaniah chapter three. And we're going to be looking at two things. And the Hebrew Bible students here that we've got a couple of, Them that are here, that I'm teaching, will recognize the first point. That is God's pathos. We just so happen to be covering this at the same time. But then also God's joy over you. So we'll get to that. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for their festival, so that they will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, At that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make your renown and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, saith the Lord." All right. So, quite the passage. We've read almost a third of the book. Um, it's not a long book at all. Um, and I said, first of all, God has concern for you. That is God's pathos. What do I mean by that word pathos? We hardly ever use it. I mean, you've probably heard of pathology, right? Which is basically what's wrong with But the word is actually meaning something different than pathology or pathogens, disease. The word actually comes from the Greek pathos for suffering. And it really means this. Even in Merriam-Webster, it says, it's an emotion of sympathetic pity. In other words, God looks at human beings and realizes, oh, there's that feeling. He looks at what we're doing and has that feeling of pity. Not in a, oh, so sad for you from a distance, but actually it affects, you affect him. You actually get under God's skin in a sense. Whatever happens to you matters to God. It really impacts him. He has set this whole thing up so that you'd be the center of his attention and his concern. This is why um, one of the books I've, I've uh, been using for this Hebrew Bible class is from Abraham Heschel called The Prophets. And he writes about what pathos is. He says, he is not conceived as judging the world in detachment. God doesn't sit there in some object. He's not some computer in the sky. He's not even like a Judge Judy who's just you know kind of yelling at people that seems to not really care about them, but to get good TV ratings. No. He reacts, he says, in an intimate and subjective manner, and thus determines the value of events. Quite obviously in the biblical view, man's deeds may move him, affect him, grieve him, or on the other hand, gladden and please him. Pathos denotes not an idea of goodness, but a living care. Not an immutable example, but an outgoing challenge. A dynamic relationship between God and man. Not mere feeling or passive affection, but an act or attitude composed of various spiritual elements. No mere contemplative survey of the world, but a passionate summons. And so God called the prophets because he cared so much about his people. He wanted whatever way he's going to, he's going to get through to you. He cares about you. He's moved by you. He's delighted by you. He is grieved by you. He celebrates over you. He wants the best for you. He's concerned about you. He's in agony over you. And he even gets angry at our foolishness, yes. But his anger is not like somehow separated from his love. It's because he does love so much that when he sees what's going on in our lives, he's like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe. That's how God is. And so Zephaniah starts out his book in a rather harsh way, I would say. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says... I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. He's going to just sweep it all away because of his injust- the injustice that he sees. It's really a reversal of everything that he created in Genesis chapter 1, and now he's saying I'm going to bring it to an end. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's like Wait a minute, God. I, you know, This is why I hate the Old Testament. You know, The Old Testament is so full of a God of wrath. You got to put it in context just a bit. Zephaniah is speaking these words after about a 700-year period when God had been calling and wooing and caring for and loving and trying to get the attention of Israel, 700 years during which time 90% of them, 90% of the time, were worshiping false gods and idols. And idolatry is not just about, oh, worshiping some little statue and doing a little sacrifice to it. Idolatry brings in the whole practice of manipulative understanding of life, the fact that if I do this, then God is going to do this for me, and how we then treat other people with injustice and bribery, and everything's about power plays in a world of idolatry. Actually, idolatry is all about self-worship in the end because I'm just doing these things to get what I want. And that has causing so many issues in your life and mine. And God not only has spent 700 years on this... <laughs> but in southern, the kingdom of Judah that Zephaniah is preaching to at this point in time, they had just had one of the few great kings, Josiah, who had brought about a reform by reading God's word, finding the book of the law in the temple, (laughs) kind of getting all the cobwebs off of it, realizing how Israel had fallen away and had brought them back during his short life To be worshiping the one true God, and then Josiah dies. And Israel, Judah, fall back right into it. They just apostatize all over the place. And immediately, that's when Zephaniah is preaching these words. He's preaching these words because Judah knew better. They had seen the northern kingdom of Israel just taken off into exile by Assyria, and yet they're still not learning the lesson. It's like, what more can God do? And he still calls through his prophet Zephaniah. He still calls. Maybe you'd rather have God be indifferent, that that he didn't really care, that he just kind of let you go off on your own. But I don't think you really do. I don't think you really do. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to your life or mine is that God would say whatever. Oh, okay, well, they're loss. He cares so much about you he's even gonna get in your face through the prophets. He loves you so much he's gonna get angry with you when things go sour. He's not going to put up with it. In fact, I think maybe like any good parent knows, there's kind of that thin line between love and anger. Do you know what I mean, parents? You've probably been there. I recall a time um, I, kinda, I, was, I was doing nothing bad, but I just didn't call home and tell my parents I was going to be late. I was at a friend's house until 1 in the morning on a week, weekend. And they thought I would be home by 11. I walk in the door, and my mother is there because she can't sleep. This was before cell phones, texting, and all this stuff. This was back in the dark ages, students. (laughs) And she just. I was taken back by the wrath of a mom at that moment in time. But it was all because she loved me so much. She cared about me so much. She was going to make sure that that never happened again. And she didn't have to worry for hours and not sleep because she didn't know where her son was and if something terrible had happened. How many parents can relate to this? How many kids have had that happen to them in some form? Yeah, Edwin Gifford says this, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. Yeah. So love and anger are not opposites. Not at all. In Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Zephaniah says, or God speaks, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just command. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps. You may be hidden on the day of the anger. God does not want to bring any of this about. Yes, God is patient, 700 years of patience, even more, but God is not indifferent. God is compassionate, but he's never apathetic. God is concerned, of course, but no way is he ever aloof. He is totally involved, not detached. Not in your life, not in God's life would he ever be disconnected from you. He's transcendent and imminent, but that doesn't mean he's ever distant or heartless about anything that he does. Righteousness and justice, yes, but never callous, never cold. Active and responsive, never neutral or inattentive. God is concerned about you, and he's going to connect with you whatever way he can, even if it takes a prophetic word like Zephaniah to get through. You see, the fear that's really behind shame, by the way, is the fear, as Brene Brown has said, of disconnection, of not being worthy of connection. (laughs) That's the last thing you can get from the Hebrew scriptures. God finds you absolutely his attention. He is so concerned about, he will never be disconnected from you. He is so concerned over your life, more concerned about you than you are over yourself. He cares more about you than you care about yourself. That's the story of the Hebrew scriptures. It might be a wake-up call to hear this this morning, it might, and rightly so. I think the prophets, you could say, are the smelling salts to Israel a way to try to wake us up from our indifference, our apathy towards God and towards others, our willingness to look at all the injustices of the world and say, well, that's just the way it is, or you know, let's just write this off, or write that off, or treat people poorly, when God himself is agonizing and grieving over this world. One thing that does not happen, by the way, is this is not how this book ends. The last word is never a word of judgment in the prophets. The last word is never about, oh, just let it happen. Abraham Heschel put it this way, evil is never the climax of history. Right now in this world, we're wondering. (laughs) We're seeing what's happening in Ukraine. We are seeing what's happening with Israel. We're seeing how God's people have been treated all over the place in a variety of ways. We're also seeing how we are treating one another, and we're thinking maybe evil will be the climax of history, but not according to the Bible, not God's story. At best, it's anticlimactic. Yes, judgment comes, but then comes mercy. God will never let evil win out. God's amazing love and mercy is what's going to win in the end. And that's why our second point is the main point and really the way this book ends, which is amazing, and that is God's joy. The prophet says this in Zephaniah 3.11, On that day you will, shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. And you go like, what is the day that Zephaniah is talking about. He talked about a day of wrath, a day of judgment, but this day sounds a little different. It's the same day, it's just who gets the judgment and who gets the mercy. And, and how does he bring this about? Is, is it something that happens to us that we finally change? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this in scripture, but I don't find throughout the scriptures that human beings change too much. The injustices we see, even from Genesis 4 with Cain murdering Abel, (laughs) keep happening all the way through, just on greater scales. We might not have clubs anymore. We've got laser guns now that we're going to use, right? But we're still doing it. The injustices still happen. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is the way Romans chapter 3 says it. No, we didn't change to bring this day about. It is God who makes the change necessary. God makes the change necessary on that day, so the day of judgment and the day of God's goodness are one day where he sweeps away all wickedness and he brings in his love and mercy. It's the day when Jesus, the Son of God, takes the shame that we should have, faces our rebellion straight on, and he's put to death for all of our pride and arrogance, all our self-righteousness and defiance of the law, and God allows that death to take our place, to show us his amazing love. It's not a day of just joy and happiness it wasn't something where god just did a god switch okay i've just changed my mind about these people not at all it's a day where jesus went through it in order for us not to have to endure it it's a day good friday is good not because it sounded great on the day of it wasn't good for jesus but boy is it so good for us and when we see what god has done in christ how he was despised and rejected and played the scapegoat for all of us when he himself was completely righteous and deserved nothing that we threw at him. That's the kind of love that can compel us and can melt our hearts and turn us from hardened people to those willing to listen, to repentant sinners who can now rejoice in God and call it Good Friday because of the good that he has done for us. It's on that day. That's the day. God doesn't want to punish. God doesn't want to be angry with us. That's not him. Just like you, as a parent, didn't want to really be angry with your child at that instant. But boy, it comes out when you love him so much. So he does sometimes what he doesn't want to do in order to get what he does want to do. And that's why not only does Zephaniah say we are going to rejoice in our God who does these things, but that God is the one What he really wants to do is rejoice over you. That is his default. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God is the one who takes our reproach and instead comes into our midst to save us. He cares about you so much. He comes to your rescue. He does the impossible for you. And now he just wants to celebrate over you and be glad over you. And it's the only place I know in the scriptures that says it, but God sings over you. He has a song. And you're at the lyrics to that song. Have you ever imagined what God's singing would sound like? Maybe it's um, kind of the sound of Niagara Falls with a thousand sun's power and then perfectly attuned to a million Pavarotti tenors. I don't know. But I do know he sings over you and rejoices over you. And he will sing over you and rejoice over you. Have you ever had anybody sing over you? You know, I was thinking about that. People sing happy birthday, but that's kind of like I don't think they really sing it over you. You're not kind of, you are because it's your birthday. Maybe once a year, maybe you've been somewhere where people sing karaoke and they're singing, and but they're not really singing over you. They're singing in front of you, right? But to sing over you and to make you the center of that song, the last time that probably happened was when you were a little baby and your mom or your dad Maybe to calm you or quiet you would sing kind of a lullaby. Your God wants to sing a lullaby over you. He's always wanted to. He always will. So what do you believe God's default attitude is toward you? It's not disappointment. It's not that the center of his personality is anger or sternness or judgment. Those are only there because of his deep abiding love for you. It's so deep and so broad and so wide. That's the center of his personality, who he is. God is love, as 1 John 4 says. God is not just loving. He's not just thinking about it. He is love in action. He wants to connect with you more than you've ever wanted. You can't desire all that he desires for you. It's impossible. You're not overlooked. You're not trivial. You are God's not only concern, you are his delight, as Zephaniah 3 says. Or as I said, you are the lyrics to the song that God sings. Let's pray. Lord God, um, too easily we think you're disappointed in us or dismissive, and that is not you at all, Lord. Through the prophets, you have shown your deep concern and the fact that one day you will celebrate with us and will renew this earth and this world. We thank you for that, Lord, that we are... You delight in us. You have wanted us. You still want us. No matter the condition we're in, you delight and you rejoice over us that there is one more, there is more celebration and joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than a hundred others that are already there. We thank you, Lord, that you have such delight in each of us today. Lord, you grieve more than we do over the injustices that we have seen we pray lord for the hostages that are right now uh, within the gaza strip we pray for all the innocent civilians who are in the middle uh, between hamas and israel right now we pray lord that wickedness does not win out here evil has no last word here lord god but your will can be worked that you would work your justice out in this world the only way that uh, we don't want it any other way than your way, Lord God. For Israel, for Ukraine, for Sudan, there's just way too many conflicts in this world, Lord. All it does is prove our waywardness, that we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory, but eternal life is your free gift by grace, Lord, through Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those who, who may be here who still hear those accusations of uh, that they're not worthy or they're not good enough in some way, Lord, before you. Lord, take away that shame. Cover it with your glory and honor. Let them know that they are absolutely loved, that you are head over heels in delight over them, that you created them, you have redeemed them, you will glorify them and help us to be those who share that such a word with this world in need, Lord, that is covered in so much shame they don't even realize it. Lord God, uh, we thank you for our campus ministry and all the students that have been involved. We praise you for that. We lift up our worship uh, night that will occur in just over a week, Lord, in about 10 days. And we pray that your spirit would be upon all those who will help lead that, Um, both um, the musicians and others in the campus ministries, that with one voice we can glorify you and that you bring about um, just the growth of your kingdom through events like this and others on campus at FGCU. We pray for our community, Lord, Uh, We've been through a lot down here, and you know it, and you've been with us through it. We pray that we at Thrive can serve this community in effective ways. And Lord God, for those who need your healing, for Dan who is still hospitalized and recovering from surgery, we pray your healing. For those who are facing any illness in our midst, Lord, we pray that you'd be working in them now. We ask, Lord, that we would become such a body of Christ here that we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and that uh, we continually bring um, the concerns of others before you, Lord, knowing that we can cast all our anxieties on you because you do care for us. That is your stance, Lord, your love and compassion and grace. So as we now go into a time of offering and contemplation, Lord, we ask, first of all, Lord, that you would forgive us, renew us, and lead us. As we receive the Lord's Supper today, Lord Jesus, as you come to us, that you intimately want to commune with us, Lord God. We know we're not, quote, worthy on our own, but you call us and you make us worthy. You invite us and therefore we come not because we're perfect, not because of anything within us, but because of your great invitation. Lord God, we are amazed at that, but it's true. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, not you. But if, when we confess our sins, you are faithful, you are just, you forgive us all, sins, all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And for this promise, we thank you. So uh, use our time, Lord, to contemplate your word in our lives, to apply it deeply, that it root in us deeply, Lord. Our offerings, Lord, for your glory and your kingdom's uh, work, and prepare us to receive all that you have for us in, in holy communion this day. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.